Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. The words that you said that spoke this incredible world into creation and the words you recorded for us in your scriptures. May they be for us the bread of life. May they open our eyes to see you at work in our midst, to transform our hearts, to participate with you in the redemption of the cosmos. May we make you famous with all we say, with all we do, whether at home or at work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last five weeks, we've been working through a sermon series called Why Work? Why Work? Which I've loosely based off a book by Timothy Keller called Every Good Endeavor. Great book, worth your time. And we started by attacking some of the lies that our culture believes about work and business and our day jobs. The first lie that we attacked was what Mark Twain said about work, which is that work is a necessary evil that should be avoided at all costs. We said instead work is not a necessary evil, that God himself works, and that since you and I have been made in the image of God, God has given us work to do for our flourishing and our fulfillment, that work is a blessing. The second lie we talked about was that work is a curse, that work actually came out of sin, that if human beings had never sinned, we would never have to do any work. We'd still be laying somewhere under a grapevine and grapes would just like fall into our mouths and unicorns would fall up, like they would like walk up to us with a horn full of cotton candy and we would just nibble on it right after without ever moving. And that's just not how the scriptures present it. Even in the garden, there is work. Even in the garden, God creates a perfect garden that is not yet complete. And he tells human beings to grow, to cultivate, to improve, uh, to make it better. That's why the Bible begins in paradise, but paradise is a garden. And the Bible ends in paradise, but in the end, it's not a garden anymore. It is a city. And in that city, there are plants and trees and the tree of life and the, is there. Uh, but the, the, the Bible narrative moves from a perfect garden to a perfect city. We talked about uh, the third lie was uh, that I'm just a bus driver or my job is not important. I'm just a bus driver. The truth is that if God has called you to it, all work that is done in Jesus' name is sacred work. Sure, there are ways that violate and explicitly deny or contradict the Bible. And those are not God honoring in any way. Things like, um, I don't know, being a, a torture expert or a um, pornography producer. Um, but, whether you, but if you're not doing something like that, if you are a school teacher, a janitor, a president, a professional athlete, uh, then your work can be a calling, a vocation, a ministry. And God calls us to serve God's world through our work. And the fourth one being, the fourth lie being that you can rest when you're dead. The truth is that God created us to work. Six days you shall work and on the seventh you shall rest. But God has called us to a rhythm of work and rest modeled by the Sabbath that reminds us that, that if we cannot s- stop working to enjoy God's creation, to enjoy the people God's put around us and to enjoy um, time with God, if we cannot take Sabbath, then we are slaves to our own idols. We are a slave to our boss. We're a slave to our desires. We're a slave to our kids' desires. We're a slave to our own need to perform. And we said that the reason we believe all these lies about work from whether work is bad to whether we cannot take a day off. The reason is because work is broken. Work was mutilated by the sin and the fall. 
You and I, all human beings, were made to work with God, in concert with God. We were made to get our worth and our satisfaction and our value, our sense of well-being from an intimate relationship with God. But that was severed by sin and has disconnected us from God, and so we turn to created things, including work, to make us feel worthy, to make us feel lovable and valuable. We try to medicate our fear, we try to medicate our sin, when we, when we sin, we feel fear and shame and exposure, and we try to medicate this fear, shame, and exposure with either underwork or overwork. We either procrastinate or we exploit. And we said that work is so central, so absolutely core to who we are as human beings, to what it means to be a human being, that we tend to view our work as salvific, And this is so thorough an idea, so rooted in the human heart, that the Bible basically divides all world religions into two categories. Either it is a religion of works, or it is a religion of faith. Every religion on the planet, except for maybe materialistic evolution, recognizes that you and I are separated from the divine. But every other faith says the solution to our separation from the divine is to do lots of good works. To work hard enough at the right things and God will have to pay you with heaven or nirvana or enlightenment or even millions of dollars and never getting cancer according to some really perverted strains of Christianity that aren't Christian. Every, every other religion other than Christianity believes and teaches the slogan hanging over the gates of Auschwitz that work shall set you free. And they may argue over what works you need to do, whether you need to give to the poor or whether you just need to to not punch anybody in the face or whether you have to strain out the gnats out of your tea or whether you have to um, go on a pilgrimage. But ultimately, ultimately, they are set up such that you are God's employee and God pays you, rewards your good work with heaven. But the problem with that, the problem with that, the problem with that imagery, the problem with every other merit-based religion in the world where you do good and God has to reward you is that spiritually speaking, from a spiritual point of view, if we could see ourselves as God sees us, we would realize we're not singing um, any great labor camp songs. We're singing that old, anybody remember the old Tennessee Williams song, 16 Tons? 16 tons and what do you get another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter don't you come because I can't go oh my soul to the company store (laughs) I was born (laughs) I'm just kidding uh Yeah, the problem with that is that the Bible says uh, that every day, every day I'm not actually making any ground on the company store. That that spiritually speaking, my debt is, is growing every day I go. I've already sinned too many times to count this morning against my wife and my sons, not to mention against you guys. Um, and so if I could see myself as God sees me, I would be singing 16 tons. Uh, St. Peter, don't you call me because I haven't earned God's favor yet. I haven't gotten enough done yet. I'm trying not to trip on this cord right here. That's, I'm not, I don't have like an itch. <laughs> I felt like a horse there, like trying to get a horse fly off. Um, the Bible says, What is crazy, the Bible says this, if God were to pay you for your work, if God were to pay you for your work, do you know what you and I would receive? Do you know what we have earned? Do you know what God owes us? 
The Bible says in Romans 6.23, you may want to turn there. It's the reason I didn't read the scripture beforehand is because this is really the scripture I'm going to work through. Romans 6.23 just says this, that the wages of sin is death. That if God were to pay you, if he were to actually sit down and write your paycheck and he were to sign it in uh, if you were to sign it, then what you and I have earned, what God owes us, what all the good works that I think I have done have added up to is death, is death because I've rebelled against God. I've mutinied against God. I've decided which good works I'll do and which good works I won't do, which um, I, I've decided I will trust my own best ideas and that this, the payment for that, this payment for a heart that says, I'll get mine first or God, you're, you're a great vending machine in the sky and if I, if I just do this, a little of this and a little of that and I don't do that and I don't do that, then God, you owe me. That that kind of heart actually merits death and death in the Bible is not just dying, ceasing to breathe, ceasing to have a heartbeat, ceasing to have electrical function in your brain. Death in the Bible is always refers to something along the lines of separational, relational distance, relational distance. And so death means that I no longer have an intimate relationship with God where I understand him and hear him. But that is not Christianity. Look at Romans 6.23. It says, the wages of sin is death. But, 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 if you write in your Bible, and I hope you do, you better circle that word. That's the most important word in the whole Bible. That's not the name of Jesus. B-U-T, but, 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 because if the first half of that sentence is true and there is no but, then you and I are doomed and we can go home and, and do whatever will make us happy until we die because there's no point to your life. But there is a but, and the but says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You see, God's economy is not built on hard work and paychecks. It is built on love and surprise presence. It is built on surprise gifts. You know the difference between um, a gift and a paycheck, right? The gift, the difference between a gift and a paycheck, between a birthday gift and between uh, Friday afternoon, you get a paycheck because you worked for someone, whether you liked it or not and whether they liked you or not, because you earned it. You get a gift. Why do you get a gift? Not because you earned it. You get a gift because somebody loves you. You get a gift because somebody loves you. You get a gift because somebody thought your life was worth celebrating and wanted to give you something. At cost to themselves, they decided to spend their hard-earned time and money to either make you something or to buy you something and to give it to you. And this gift comes from God because only God could pay for it, only God had access to it, and only God could give it. And God gives us eternal life in Christ Jesus because he loves us. And Jesus did all the work for us. Jesus did all the work of saving us by living a life that I could not lead, by dying a substitutionary death that should have been my death, and by raising victoriously over the death, over death and over hell, so that I have nothing to fear in life and in death. He did all the work, earned all the glory, all the fame, all the honor, and now he spreads his grace and his forgiveness around like confetti. And what does he give? What does he offer us? Jesus doesn't offer us an easy life for a million bucks or 70 virgins on a private cloud or a panther's win or any other materialistic blessing. It's not a guarantee that we won't get sick, that, we won't, uh, that, our, that our children won't die, that we won't get cancer and that our job won't ever fail. All of those things happen to Christians every single day. 
No, God does not give us those. God gives us eternal life. And eternal life in the Bible refers to life with God. Life lived in intimate connection with God. God gives us a relationship with God, a living, breathing, talking, listening, walking with God in the cool of the day, hearing God constantly say, well done, my son, good and faithful servant. Well done. This is my son. This is my daughter. And you, I am well pleased. You, I've set my affection on you. You are not what you do. You are what I say you are. You are mine and I am yours. We don't have to, to, and we don't have to wait till we die to get that then. We don't have to wait till we die to spend eternity with Jesus. We can start right now because Jesus, because Christianity, Christianity is not about getting into heaven. As my friend, um, who's not actually my friend, but I listen to him all the time, uh, John Orberg says, a Christianity is not about the minimum entrance requirements to heaven. It's not about getting you into heaven. Christianity is not a great evacuation plan meant to get everyone from earth into heaven because this ship is sinking. No, 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 not at all. In fact, it's the very opposite. And Jesus teaches this in his central prayer. You remember what Jesus taught when he said, pray this way our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done where in heaven on that side of the other divide no on earth as it is in heaven Jesus' plan Jesus' great incredible story for the redemption of the world is not getting us to heaven though that will happen at some point but about getting heaven to earth about bringing up there down here about remaking all that is so that everything bad becomes untrue the whole world being flooded with heaven as more and more people recognize and accept Jesus as their king if you are a Christian you have been saved from judgments and your sin has been forgiven and you will enter paradise when you die. But God's will is so much bigger than that. You are now part of a divine conspiracy to redeem the entire world, to remake every part of creation from culture to music to buildings and architectures to human relationships and politics um, to family life and to TV shows and to, to, I don't know, who knows what else, to redeem every corner, every nook and cranny, to bring up there, down here, to bring the reign of Christ, the lordship and the kingship and the glory and the splendor and the organization and the beauty of heaven to earth. And we see this throughout the Bible, but Revelation says that one day it will become a reality, that heaven and earth will be married, that there will be a new city, the new Jerusalem, where we dwell in perfect harmony, where heaven and earth so overlap, you can't talk about whether you're in heaven or in earth. You are just here that's the story of the world that's the story that governs every part of our lives that is the Christian gospel that God wants to redeem us and then he wants and if that gospel is the center of our existence the source of our value and the destiny of our lives then everything in our life changes every last part of our life gets revolutionized under the lordship of Christ I've heard someone say this, if there is not a single aspect of your life that is not tainted by sin, if there's not a single relationship in your life that doesn't involve, uh, that, that's not compromised or, or, or messed up by sin, then there is not a single part of your life that Jesus doesn't want control over, that Jesus doesn't want to redeem and to bless, that God doesn't want a piece of your life. He doesn't want your Sundays. He wants your life. He wants your 24-7, 365 life because he's good and he loves you. And so it changes everything. Our parenting changes because no longer are we just trying to keep our kids out of jail and keep them from not moving, but like keep them from not moving back in with us after college. 
That's no longer the goal. Those are great things, and I'm for those things too. But our goal is actually to raise kids who are aware of God's love, who rejoice in Jesus' saving deaths, and want to make Jesus famous by spreading this divine conspiracy. Our hobbies change because our hobbies are not just about self-medicating or or numbing ourselves to the pain in the world and the, the drudgery of our existence. No, our hobbies are about enjoying God's good creation with God and the people God's put around us. It's about worship. And finally, our work changes. Our work is not just for a paycheck. In our culture, anybody seen the movie School of Rock? There's this phrase in there, working for the man, working for the man. Well, you and I, we now work for the man. And the man is Jesus Christ. You and I work for Christ. We do everything we do. We want to do as if we were working for Jesus' family business. You ever think about that? thing? I want you to think about your life, whether you are a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a paramedic, whether you're a soldier in the U.S. military, what, what you now work in Jesus' family business. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that you and I now have koinonia with God. That word koinonia is almost always translated fellowship, but the root of that word is a business partnership. Koinonia is the word that describes uh, James, John, and Peter, and Andrew. You remember James and John and Simon, Peter, and Andrew are all fishermen, and they own two boats? It says they were business partners, and the word was koinonia. It was, um, and so you and I have been invited into God's business, and God's business is remaking the world to redeem it, to rebuild it, to restore it, to rescue it. Our job is not just to cultivate the earth and make it disciples as we saw in Genesis, but now after the fall, you and I are also responsible for helping or to partnering with God to redeem the world, to rebuild it, to restore the world, to rescue it. We are part of a conspiracy to bring heaven to earth to submit all the earth, all areas of life to Jesus. And we don't do this with brute force. We do this with beauty. We don't do it by just beating people. We do this by wooing people because this is how Christ has done. And so how do we do this in our work lives? How does this change the way we go about our vocation? How does this do it? Last week, I mainly focused on two things. We work with competence, and so we do well at our job. We also work with character, and so we do good at our job. Maybe you need a reminder that week. Every time somebody asks you, uh, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Or how you doing? Just respond, I'm doing good. And when they try to correct you and say, you mean doing well, you say, no, I'm doing good. Good is a noun, and right now I'm doing good by doing my job well. I'm doing good by doing well. So maybe you need to twist up grammar to have that reminder. And then the last one was about contagious faith. We work with contagious faith. You and I are missionaries at our job. We are God's ambassadors at our job. And there's three ways I want to outline, and I only have a a few minutes to do it, but I'm going to give them to you as quickly as I can, but with as much gusto as I can as well. The first one is at your job, whether you are a stay-at-home mom, a school teacher, a banker, a snow cone vendor make the gospel make the gospel produce products that mirror the gospel produce products that acknowledge and leverage the inherent goodness of creation to mirror the gospel in the bible we see all over the place what what we can call redemptive metaphors the bible loves redemptive metaphors these things that jesus walking around and he points to and he says the kingdom of heaven is like a field of grain the kingdom of heaven is like a man who had 10 bags of gold the kingdom of heaven is like 
In the Old Testament, the Psalms are full of this, right? The Lord says, the Lord, David said, the Lord is my strong tower. The Lord is my, a mighty refuge is our God, is how Martin Luther translated it. Uh, that um, the Lord, that your love, O Lord, is sweeter than honey. It is more intoxicating than wine, is what the Bible says. The Bible says, um, uh, that the Lord is my shield and my reward. The Lord is, um, that, that I'm the apple of his eye. And so what, how does what you make help people marvel and delight at God's goodness, the awesome wonder of this world? How does your product point up to Jesus? How can it be a metaphor for explaining God's goodness? The Bible, like I said, sweeter than honey, better than oil, the bread of heaven. The heavens declare your goodness. And so what you make can be a metaphor that you point to to explain what you believe about God. Let what you make mirror what you believe God is about and who God is in the character. Maybe you can make products out of reclaimed materials that used to be waste. Things that we use all the time right now were once waste items. Tomatoes, skim milk, compost, recycled paper. Um, all these things were once wasted until somebody found a way to use them and to market them and to make a profit off of them, and they are not guilty for making a profit. If you make people safer, then you can point people to Jesus as their strong tower, their fortress, their shield. If you help secure people against unwise debt, then you can talk about Jesus being their reward, their inheritance, their great goodness. As you uh, financially advise people, you can talk about, you can, uh, you can point to these things as indicators and tools for pointing it out. Make products that make the world better. Make products that make the world better. Better medicine, better makeup for heaven's sake, better cars and fuel efficiency and farms and all that second model the gospel first make the gospel make good stuff i'm reminded you don't have to make explicitly christian stuff if you're a t-shirt designer you don't have to put jesus across the front of it you just make a great t-shirt that people want to wear that is sourced ethically and priced fairly and last and doesn't wear out i told you last week about jr about jrr tolkien who is a christian formed by that world and yet he does not write books about jesus he writes about Middle Earth, this imaginary land full of wizards, and yet somehow it is the gospel. If you read that book, you have a hard time not finding yourself seeing Jesus everywhere. Second, at your work, you can model the gospel. Make the gospel, model the gospel. How can you act like Jesus towards your employees, towards your customers, towards the people God's put around you? And I want to just give you a few ideas. These actually came from business people that I get the the privilege of rubbing elbows with at first go the extra mile go the extra mile we used to sing a song when i was a kid um and i can't remember the whole thing that said uh, you came from heaven to earth from earth to the cross from the cross to the grave from the grave to the sky lord i lift your name on high it's called lift your name on high Jesus went the whole extra mile. He always went the extra mile. And so you and I can go above and beyond. A business um, leader in this church uh, gave me a book not long ago called 212 Degrees. 212 Degrees. At 211 degrees, water is hot. It's hot enough to make tea or to burn your finger. But it can't do much else than that. But at 212 degrees, what happens? It boils, and when it boils, it creates steam, and steam can move a locomotive. Steam can move thousands and thousands of pounds of stuff and people across the globe. Steam can power whole um, warehouses. Steam calls the Industrial Revolution. Steam, it's the difference between hot water 
and steam is one single degree, one single extra degree. And so in your work life, go the extra degree. One more smile, one more hour, one more step, one more thing that the competitor is not going to do. Not to be better than the competitor, though that's okay too, but because God is worth that one extra degree, one extra degree. This businessman believes so much that God has called them to always go above and beyond. Every person in their business has to read this book and then summarize it to him. So don't settle for 211 degrees. Second, make good people, not just good products. Model the gospel by making not just good people, but good product, or not just good products, but good people. Let me just tell you, you are making disciples at your workplace. You are right now making disciples at your workplace. And you are either discipling them to follow Jesus or you are discipling them towards something else. But you are training people. If you have people under you, you are teaching them. And you are teaching them what matters most in life. You are teaching them what, you, what matters most to you by what you reward and what you celebrate, what you will tolerate and what you will not tolerate. All of that is disciple-making stuff. All of it is. Whether you mention the name of Jesus at all, you are training people. Every day, you are teaching them these things of things, how to make sense of their world, how to frame their lives. And while you're there, you can constantly point them to what matters most in life. What matters most in life? Why profit matters. Why profit matters to the company, but why also matters to the world. Invest in them in making them character. Invest in them um, in, in building them up. I have uh, the, uh, f- another business friend who in 2010 had this crazy idea, sitting around in 2010, and he had this crazy idea. He said, our company is just kind of loosening its moorings a little bit. And so he created this list, 10 values for 2010, 10 values for 2010, 10 values that he wrote down. And in their company, that was it, tw- 10 values for 2010. And everybody in the company had to be able to identify these values, and then they would check in on how they're doing. And so theirs was um, family first. That was one of their values, family first. How are we doing on loving our family? Uh, the other one was we make, um, we, we sacrifice uh, for others. The second one is uh, we make profit. Like we have to, and we shut this thing down. If we don't make profit, then we don't exist. And so they point these things out. You can do that. You can teach value. You can teach character. You can teach, um, you can teach how to be a good dad, how to be a good wife, how to be a, a good father, a good son, how to be a good human being. And lastly, train your replacement. Always train your replacement. Train the guy who's going to take over after you. Train the gal who's going to take over the company after you because there's only two possible good things that could happen. Either the world, in the best case scenario, you can grow the company because there's two of you, so the company's twice as big. In the worst case scenario, they leave you and they go start another business. Well, if you train them well, then the world's got one more really good business in it. (laughs) It means more jobs. That's not bad. It's bad for you, but it ain't bad for the world. Lastly, speak the gospel. Speak the gospel. Make the gospel, model the gospel, speak the gospel. You will have opportunities to speak truth into your employees and your coworkers and your fellow students' lives. High schoolers, moms, anybody. High schoolers, you get opportunities to pray for other students. You get opportunities. Employees will get sick. Members of their family will die. They will have kids. They will need meal trains. They will take other jobs. They will go through transition. Every single one of those is an incredible opportunity to just say, this is a big moment in your life. Can I just pray for you that God would give you wisdom as you make this decision about where your career is going next? Or I am so sorry that your dad died. And I don't really have any words for that, but could I just pray for you that God would 
be close by during this time? I'm so excited that you just had a kid. Can I bring a meal by and celebrate the birth of this child with you? Because I believe every child is a gift of God, whether it was planned or not. Take the moment to testify about how God used those career choices in your life to change your life and to introduce yourself to him, to grow your faith. Tell him about the risky decision um, to move to Raleigh, to take a job without knowing anybody, without owning a house. Or tell him about the time that you decided you were gonna go into the family business even though you didn't know how it was gonna happen. And God showed up and made it. And lastly, explain your reasoning for doing stuff. And don't be afraid to just say Jesus. Half the time, there's not another, opportun- another uh, other reason than Jesus. We take risks on people, ex-cons and no experience and young kids and other races and people that the world doesn't think are qualified because Jesus took a risk on me. And I'm not qualified to be a preacher, but Jesus has chosen to use me, and so I choose to use the least of these in my work. Why do we pay the same why, do we, why, do we ha- why have we set our pay scale this way? Is because Jesus told this incredible story about a guy who gave a denarius for every person who came to work for him. And I was just convicted that I needed to evaluate the way I pay people. And I remember one man in uh, Tim Keller's book, he was an investment banker, and his company stood to make a lot of money, a whole heap of money, by investing in things um, that don't benefit the world things that are not illegal, things like um, there are huge multi-billion dollar industries that are booming right now. We call them sin industries. Anybody know sin stocks? Sin stocks are a real thing. Um, You can divest from them. You can actually call your investor if you have a retirement and say, I want you to completely divest me from sin stocks. And they'll have a list and they'll divest you from it. Um, It'll mean you can't make money off of things like pornography. It'll mean you can't make uh, things off of, you can't make money off of things like payday, Uh, shark loans or casinos and this man had an opportunity for that he saw that the company was going to buy this enormous that this company had an opportunity to buy a bunch of payday loans or a bunch of um, uh, casinos and he just said I can't do that because that doesn't make the world a better place but I'm not going to stop the company from doing that in fact I'll help the deal go through I just will not I will not accept any bonus any commission on this deal at all I cannot profit from it personally and people are like, why not? Like, why? It's legal. Like, we haven't broken the law. We haven't manipulated stock prices. And he just said, because I'm a Christian and God's called me to make the world a better place. And I don't expect you to, to believe the same things I do, but I just can't do this. And it gave him an opportunity to talk about that and to share the gospel with his friends. For you, you can tell your employees um, why, you, why you've chosen uh, to, start, to be in the business you're in or why you choose uh, to do what you do. Friends, your work, your day job is your mission field. It is your partnership with God's family business to make the world a better place. Let's take that serious. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you don't pay us in paychecks, but you give us good gifts. I thank you that you accepted our penalty, our wages. You gladly took them upon yourself in order that you might give us a Christmas gift, an infant in a manger, 
and that you might give us an Easter present, a son on a cross, that we might know you and live in light of your eternity. I pray right now, if there is somebody here who's been trying to earn your favor and just has never trusted you, has never made sense for them, that they couldn't earn a paycheck from God, and they want to trust you right now that they've been confronted with the reality of death and they want to trust you right now and they can do so by becoming a Christian and trusting you. It's as easy as ABC. Admit you've been running your own life and made a mess of it. B, believe Jesus died to save you and C, commit to following him for the rest of your days. You can do that right now with a simple prayer. It's not magic. It's just talking to God who is listening. God, I need you. I really really needs you my life does not make sense without you my work is pointless without you and I make bad decisions that hurt people I love but I believe that you sent your son to save me and so I commit to trusting Jesus to be my savior and I give him the reins of my life to lead me where he wants to whatever time I have left on this earth I will live trying to bring heaven to earth until you come back to rescue us, Jesus, or until you call me home to yourself. I trust you. Amen. Friends, not because we have to, but because we get to, we're going to worship God.